Hello! Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. Way back in October, probably in response to my Chats with Cool Folk number three with Danette and James, I ordered Stephen King's On Writing from the library. I have never read a Stephen King novel, and I haven't really seen very many of the movies. They're just not my thing. I saw Carrie way back when, and The Shawshank Redemption is brilliant. Same with Stand By Me, which I didn't even know was based on a Stephen King story. Oh, and of course I saw The Doctor's Case, as we discussed in that chat with James and Danette. Anyway, regardless of what he writes, I have heard over and over that his book called On Writing is a must-read, and the book finally arrived at the library, and I started reading it the other day. He talks about a time in the eighth grade when he and a buddy went to the movies and saw Edgar Allan Poe's The Pit and the Pendulum. He was so struck by it that he decided to write the, as he called it, the novel version. (laughs) He printed it off, and in his words, blissfully unaware that I was in violation of every plagiarism and copyright statute in the history of the world, and he sold them at school. A teacher caught the situation and called a halt and made him give back all the money he'd made. Worst of all, this teacher said to him, and I'll just read this to you. What I don't understand, Stevie, she said, is why you'd write junk like this in the first place. You're talented. Why do you want to waste your abilities? And then I'll just skip a little bit. And then it goes on to say, she waited for me to answer. To her credit, the question was not entirely rhetorical, but I had no answer to give. I was ashamed. I've spent a good many years since, too many, I think, being ashamed about what I write. I think I was 40 before I realized that almost every writer of fiction and poetry who has ever published a line has been accused by someone of wasting his or her God-given talent. If you write or paint, or dance, or sculpt, or sing, I suppose, someone will try to make you feel lousy about it. That's all. I'm not editorializing, just trying to give you the facts as I see them. And then uh, skip a little bit more, and then he just finishes up that, that section. In my heart, I stayed ashamed. I kept hearing Miss Hisler asking why I wanted to waste my talent, why I wanted to waste my time, why I wanted to write junk. What strikes me about this is that it is so relatable. (laughs) Have you been told you're wasting your talent or your time? Have you ever been made to feel ashamed for the choices you've made, for your hobbies, the music you like, the movies or books you like? I mean, they're choices, right? And who is to say that the work you're doing is junk? In whose opinion? Don't listen to them. Like I said to the kids who used to make fun of my pants in junior high school, don't like them, don't look at them, certainly don't wear them. Dealing with those twits wasn't difficult because I really, truly did not give a shit about their opinion on my pants. It was, I'll admit, more difficult to deal with my negative influence about writing fantasy because... So often the biggest influencers in our lives are people we hold aloft in some way. You know, we admire them. 
So when they pass on negative comments, we tend to believe them. The trick is recognizing it for what it is so that you can turn the volume down on that person. It took me a long time to even notice it was happening. But when I finally did, I made the decision to stop needing that person's affirmation because I wasn't ever going to get it. So I wish you all the strength you need to recognize those negative influences and to turn their volume down. Now, last week in Seaview, Misty and Juggler got hold of the only wee bit of Talima apparently in existence. So that's a problem for our friends. Skimnoddle did some of his magic, creating a clay vial. I wonder what he's going to do with that. And our friends had got themselves a table at the annual Fish Fry Festival, a concept which always makes me hungry, so more on that here. Also, right at the end of the last chapter, Jaskellen was late joining everyone else because someone slipped him a note suggesting he meet the anonymous sender at Moonrise. Gatekeeper's Deception by Krista Wallace Chapter 15 Her Motive Was Assurance Did you lose us by accident or on purpose? Kier asked when Jaskelin joined them. Hmm? Oh, yes. Well, I was assuring myself of the safety of my appointed bed in the common room. I do not wish to return tonight to some drunken oaf occupying my prepaid accommodation. I'm sure you'd have no problem kicking him off it, Kier replied. The group's light snack had chinked the cracks in their bellies, but none of them was satiated. There remained plenty of room for the fare of the festival. The smell of deep-frying potatoes and grilling fish brought droplets to their mouths. The queue couldn't move fast enough for any of them. Kier eyed the selection and turned to Fennel. You'll need a tray. These ones are wet. He shook one off and handed it to her. For a few coppers, they loaded their plates with grilled cod and potatoes, and another two coppers got them a beer for each hand. Kier arranged her tray and carried it over to the table, where Derry and Janik were already tucking in. "'I think this is my favorite place yet,' Kier said, setting down her burden. Derry raised his mug. "'Best wishes to Skimnoddle. May he find what we're looking for.' They all joined in the toast." Let's enjoy ourselves tonight, but meet at breakfast to discuss our next move, or, he added, what we'll do if he didn't find it. The fish hadn't cooled much in the short trip from grill to table, and Kier blew on her finger full before popping the sweet, flaky flesh into her mouth. The food is nearly as good as the halfling's cooking, though it would bring a sharp pain to my ribs to tell him so, Janik said. (laughs) I'll be sure to pass that on to him, Kier laughed. I knew I could count on you, he replied sarcastically. A mild breeze fluttered in off the sea in the darkening evening, but most of the revelers shed their wool cloaks as they were warmed by food and flushed by drinking and dancing. Two pipers, a lutist, a fiddler, and a drummer turned out real after two-step polka. The audience joined in the singing wherever possible. Kier and her friends ate and drank and kept their eyes open for skimnoddle. I believe I will venture into the throng. I feel like dancing, said Derry, standing up and eyeing the crowd for a potential partner. He looked down at Kier. You have made it plain in the past that you don't care for this pastime, so I won't force an embarrassing decline from you. He didn't make it clear which of them would be more embarrassed. 
With a short bow, he disappeared among the observers. Kier felt a pang of regret. It was true she had told him that dancing didn't interest her, but that was ages ago, a couple of months at least. Although she hadn't given him any reason to believe she had changed her mind, she had been giving it some thought. Dancers always looked breathlessly happy. Kier liked music, but she had never allowed herself the freedom to lose herself in it, to surrender control and feel the music through her body to the point where it flashed out of feet, toes, arms, fingers, and even flew out the eyes and smile. Maybe, just maybe, it would be good for her to let go like that. No, she could never make such a fool of herself. She smiled inwardly at the thought of her friends having a good laugh as she awkwardly counted out time while looking down to see what she ought to be doing instead of tripping over her partner's feet. She would never hear the end of it. And come to think of it, Derry was being so moody lately she didn't feel as comfortable approaching him as she might have in the past. That in itself gave her another pang of regret. She chuckled along with the others at something Janik said and took a swig of her beer. Fennel left the group to find a partner of his own, and Kier was left with Janik and Jaskelin. Soon the two of them were caught up in a discussion about whether they preferred beer over ale, and Kier didn't feel like joining in. She suddenly felt melancholy. The party throbbed around her, but she lost herself inside. This was the best time of her life. Everything she was doing now, everything that had happened over the past couple of months, both the good and the bad, was all exactly what she'd wanted. This was why she'd left Reth. All the other little tiny people who inhabited her home village were probably still living their little tiny lives, closing their minds to anything or anyone who was different. Ignoring the threat posed by the vast world beyond their undefended borders, she swigged her beer that wasn't nearly as good as at the inn where she first met Valraker. Yes, this was the best time of her life. Yet she felt that things weren't quite right. "'Come dance with me, pretty girl,' said a voice, and she looked up to see a young man with curly blonde hair. He started to take her hand. "'No thanks,' she said, not unkindly, but without a smile. He shrugged and laughed. "'I can't believe you turned him down!' Janik said with a snort. He's been staring at you for ten minutes. I didn't think it was your style to ignore men who looked at you. Kier didn't even feel like rising to the bait. I never noticed him. Her friends seemed genuinely disappointed that she wasn't provoked, but they went back to their beer. Fennel returned, hardly out of breath, and downed the last of his drink. Kier pretended to amuse herself by gazing through the crowd, but her heart wasn't in it. It jumped just a little, though, when she saw Derry swirl through the dancers with a dark-curled blossom in his arms. Her brow creased. She had seen Derry dance before when he was carefree and untroubled. Now, although his movements were smooth as ever, something was missing. Derry was obviously not happy. Was he unhappy with her, or was he just, as always, so preoccupied and concerned about their mission that he couldn't feel any other emotions than those associated with it? That was probably it. And even if he is mad at me, she thought, it's his problem. I've apologized as best I can. I don't know what else he wants from me. Kier didn't even know why it bothered her so much. She heard his voice say, try to be polite. Tiny flecks of anger sparked inside her. She hadn't exactly been polite to the young man who'd asked her to dance. This was no good at all. Time to go, she thought, though she had no idea where. She set her mug on the table and slapped her knees decisively. 
Well, guys, I'd love to stay and discuss this critical issue further, but the fact is that much as I love ale and beer, I like whiskey and elvish wine even better. I'm off. Where are you going? Giskelin asked. Oh, you know me, I have to go stir up trouble somewhere. A mild whoop emitted from her companion. Oh, yeah, and there are plenty of nice samples of trouble all around us. Janet glanced at the young man at the next table and gave Fennel a nudge that nearly set him on the floor. Just do not forget that we agreed to meet at the Odds and Suds first thing in the morning to discuss our plans, Giskelin said. Oh, stop, she wrinkled her nose at him. You're starting to sound like Derry. Of course I'll be there. And with that, she plunged into the crowd. Misty fluttered her lashes at the tall, lanky thing at the table next to her. His eyes cruised over her up and down. She stood. He stood. Buy me a beer? she asked him in her low-timbre sing-song voice. Nearly drooling from her attentions, he said, Sure thing, me lovely. He hailed a passing server and paid for two brimming mugs. Where would you like to sit? She smiled salaciously at him and took both mugs. Right here suits me. She abruptly gave him her back and sat down across from Juggler. Hey, the man said, putting an indignant hand on her shoulder. She smiled at him. Touch me again and we'll see if you can count as high as five before you die. He gulped and retreated. Misty and Juggler drank their beer and shared a plate of chipped potatoes with grilled trout. A pleasant vinegary smell rose from the plate, mingling gently with the lemon that Juggler had drizzled over the fish. Misty insisted on a small pot of ketchup for her chips, which Juggler couldn't stand, so there was no need for her to share. Juggler laid his fork down to lift his pint mug of beer when suddenly a small shape came hurtling toward him, a cry of surprise emanating from its throat. Juggler's chair did not quite tip over, but he was covered in his own beer as well as the creature's and had to thrash about to extricate himself from the thing's cloak amid its muffled cries of, I'm so terribly sorry! As soon as he had achieved liberation, Juggler thrust the thing onto the cobblestones and stuck his blade at its neck, effectively shutting it up. "'What do you mean throwing yourself at me?' he demanded. The creature, which appeared to be a halfling of largish nose, asserted himself from underneath a broad-brimmed cloth hat. "'Back off, human! I can protect myself!' he announced, to the surprise of Juggler, who was not accustomed to having his swordwork defended verbally— the funny little man fumbled through his beer-soaked cloak and drew out a small knife with a four-inch blade and held it out in front of him, more like an amulet than a weapon. I have a blade, and I know how to use it, too. He swished it back and forth with a dramatic flourish. Juggler's face was fixed with puzzlement. Misty smiled nonchalantly and dipped a chip in ketchup. Her twin grunted, sheathed his sword, grasped the halfling by his cloak and hauled him up to standing. Now that his life was no longer under serious threat, the halfling rustled through the yards of cloth to replace his knife in its home, speaking earnestly the whole time. "'Oh, my dear sir, thank you for your assistance, and I do beg of you to excuse me. So clumsy of me, tripped, you see, over that cobble just there.' He indicated the stone in question. And I'm terribly sorry if I frightened you, either with my initial lunge or with my self-defense. As you can see, I have suffered the same humiliation as yourself. He brushed beer off his cloak with a drier section of the garment. That done, he bent down to pick up the bits of broken mug that had been his beer. I took lessons, you know. Huh? 
said Juggler, who was having trouble following the creature's babble. Self-defense, the halfling explained. A traveling trainer came through my village a number of years ago, and several of us were fortunate enough to benefit from his skills. A wonderful man by the name of Billis. Do you know him? If you ever have a chance to work with him, I highly recommend that you do so. Even someone like yourself, with no great deal of experience, could learn much from him in only a few weeks. Juggler was dumbfounded and said nothing. Misty's eyebrows had nearly reached her hairline, but a twist of amusement hung in the corner of her mouth. "'And now I do wish you would allow me to recompense you for the loss of your beverage by replacing it with another. Oh, miss!' he called to a passing server with a full tray. He glanced to see what Misty was drinking and held up three fingers, then pulled out a drawstring pouch bulging with coins.' Misty and Juggler exchanged glances. Here was a naive little fellow out to have a good time this evening. Well, Juggler was not one to disappoint him. He turned to a man at the table behind him. Give me your chair. The man stared in shock. But I... I said give it to me. Juggler drew his sword. I need it more than you do. I've been under a lot of strain lately. The man relinquished the chair gladly. "'Juggler pushed the halfling into it and drew it up to the table. "'Now suppose you tell me your name, little fellow.' "'I'm not exactly little, you know,' the halfling clarified. "'I'm actually quite tall among halflings,' he held up a hand. "'But no need to apologize. I know it was said out of ignorance, but kindly meant.' "'Juggler's face grew hot with the ignorance comment, but cooled again at the end. "'Had he meant it kindly?' He supposed so, but before he could think on it more, the halfling said, "'Hector!' And Juggler said, "'What?' "'Well, sir, you asked my name a moment ago, and that's what it is. It's Hector.' He bowed to Misty and said, "'And now, lovely lady, how may I address you?' "'Misty, here's my sister.' Juggler's blood was heating up again. "'And if you say one disrespectful thing to her, I'll shave the skin right off your body one layer at a time.' "'Really?' Hector said, incredulous. "'Can they do that nowadays? "'I had not heard that it was possible. "'I've heard of shaved faces, shaved heads, even shaved ham, "'but that is truly something new. "'Thank you for the offer, and I know who to find when I'm ready to consider it. "'Now, would you care for a game of dice? "'It is one of my favorite games and a delightful way to pass an evening, "'for we can still absorb the environment and the music. "'I am not much for dancing, for larger people will tread on me, "'but I do so love the music, don't you?' "'Juggler was quite bewildered by the little man. "'He caught Misty's eye, though, and knew that look. "'She didn't trust him.' Meanwhile, Hector produced his bag of dice, and as he opened it, dumped them on the ground and had to plunge underneath the table to locate them, the whole time muttering, Oh dear, oh dear me! The little wooden cubes had rolled under the table and chairs, and Hector spent several moments crawling around and plucking them off the cobbles. He finally climbed back into his seat, shaking his head in self-deprecation. I tell you, after three pints of beer, I become an absolute slithery-fingered mess! Three pints, Juggler thought. How much can a small person take? Misty declined to play, but she and Juggler continued to eat while Hector taught them the finer points of dice. They offered him some food, but he just said, Thank you, no, I hate potatoes, and carried on. Now I do like to throw a little wager on a game like this, don't you? Makes it that much more exciting. Don't worry, we'll keep it low, he added reassuringly. Why not? Juggler said. 
He always preferred low stakes. They each put a noble in the ante. On his third turn, Juggler reached a thousand points and carried on to twenty-five hundred before calling it quits. Hector did not reach a thousand until Juggler was already at five thousand seven hundred and fifty, but then he caught up to within a thousand points. Juggler won the first game by thirty-two hundred points and was ahead by two nobles. Ooh, well done, lad! Hector shook his head in admiration. I shall have to rethink my strategy next time. The first part of his strategy was evidently to order more beer. But I say, he leaned forward conspiratorially, how about we start with a noble again, but raise the stakes with each turn? Juggler shrugged and looked over at Misty, who reassured him that she'd advise him along the way. Her shrewd eyes were on the halfling, for which Juggler was thankful, but Hector continued to smile that innocent, friendly smile. They played three more games, by the end of which Juggler was up about fifteen nobles, the halfling being too tipsy to bet sensibly. Juggler wasn't about to caution him. "'You certainly do have the luck, Mr... Uh, why, I do believe I never did get your name. Ah, well, not to worry. And as it happens, I've just recalled that when I so rudely descended upon you, quite literally, and I do apologize again for my carelessness. But you see, I was on my way to meet another friend who is equally lucky with his game as you seem to be. Don't consider for a moment the fact that I will not have the opportunity to regain my pre-game position. There is no reason whatever to feel any remorse. It is a fair price to pay for an entertaining evening such as this, and I'm just as likely to lose twice as much again when I get to my friend's. Hector gathered the dice together as he spoke and swiped them off the table into the sack. He stood up, swaying gently like a fir sapling, though with a decidedly different fragrance, and bowed to each of them with the grandeur of a courtly gentleman. As he passed around Misty, he swayed a bit further than he could without losing his balance and bumped into her shoulder. She stiffened and helped him regain uprightness before pushing him along. "'I'm glad he's gone,' she said. It was fun, but he was wearing on my nerves. I don't trust someone that friendly. She patted her pouch to double-check that the bottle of Talima was still there. Reassured, she tightened it again. What do you suppose Hunter will say when he finds out we stopped them from getting what they were after? Juggler shrugged. I just dare him to express disapproval. All the same, we'd better keep our eyes on Valraker's band and make sure they leave here. Juggler nodded and turned to watch some of the dancers. Where do you suppose I could get me some of them dice? Janik was listening to the music. Derry and Fennel were off dancing. Skimnoddle was executing his plan to secure the Talima, and Kier had gone to seek whatever sort of companionship a girl like her looked for. Jeskelin watched for the moon. The mage decided not to tell the dwarf about the note. He would attend the rendezvous, then share what news he learned with the captain and the others. Ah, there it was. The four-day-old frog moon, the first moon of summer, was just peeking over the treetops in the east when Jeskelin pleaded a need to meditate and told Janik he'd find him again later. The dwarf grunted and gave him a wave, his attention absorbed by the band who was playing a stirring rendition of The Ghost of the Darkling Mere, 
They were just coming up to his favorite line about cowering eye between the rushes, saw it rise, face of transparent moonlight, sleeves of dripping algae. Leaving Janik to shiver with delight at the words, the mage darted between tables and skirted along the outer edge of the road toward the trout inn. He saw only one or two people, but still he was relieved that the darkness of his Moabi robes kept him unobtrusive. Ah, across the street was the inn. Jeskelin intersected the road and slid down the side of the building. The trout inn backed onto an alley with a washing line and a compost heap, and a back porch from which a young maid dumped a bin of dishwashing water before scooting back in through the rectangle of light amid shouts of, Tina, have you taken that tray up to Fair Dumans? The door closed behind her and the maid was immersed in darkness again. On second thought, said a quiet voice from the shadow next to the porch, and Jeskelin jumped for the second time that evening. Perhaps this is not quite private enough for my business. The man beckoned to the mage and the two headed down the alley away from the town square. Jeskelin could just make out the sign Trout Inn Stable as they passed it. He made the finger sign for a simple guard spell, which would at least warn him of anyone coming within ten feet on all sides. The flickering presence of his host confirmed that the spell had been successful. A few minutes later they stopped at the back of a small shed behind some place of business, closed for the evening. "'This is better for me. Does it suit you?' the man asked. His voice was oddly familiar. "'It's fine. What do you want to tell me?' The spell told him there was no one inside the shed or around the corner about to ambush them. In the bright moonlight, the man pulled the hood off his red hair. Kier's only plan thus far had been to separate herself from her friends, nothing wrong with needing a break from the people she'd been traveling with for several months. She let her feet take her somewhere without letting her brain take over. Oddly enough, her feet took her to the edge of the party where the crowd was thinner and she could see Derry perfectly. She leaned against a post that prevented the roof of the milliner's shop from landing on its porch and watched him idly as he dipped and wheeled with his dark-haired, creamy-cheeked partner. Naturally, he had had no difficulty in securing one. In fact, she could see several other young women pointing him out and claiming him for themselves as they adjusted their bodices and their curls. Kier shook her head in annoyance at these silly girls. Was that all they had to think about? Looking nice so they could snatch the right dance partner? She sighed. Maybe Derry likes women who look pretty all the time and don't embroil themselves in the affairs of the world. She brushed a hand over her own hair, smoothing out the frayed braid, and stole a glance at her trousers and leather armor. She couldn't fail to observe the contrast. A compulsion hit her. What if she asked Derry to teach her to dance? Privately, of course. She wouldn't have any of her friends knowing about it. If there was anybody with the patience to teach her, it was Derry. And if anybody could be discreet, it was Derry. The perfect combination. And maybe it would do something for his mood to see her trying to be pleasant. She caught his eye just then and gave him a nod. He paused in his dialogue with the girl and her dimples just long enough to toss Kier a smile. His partner turned her head, and Kier read the next words from the girl's lips. Who's that? Kier drew her weight away from the post and steeled her resolve to go down the steps and interrupt Derry before he could be caught by the blonde girl with plenty of cleavage. Having made up her mind to do this, she did not want to lose the moment. Oh, I'm so glad to find you here, 
said a cheerful voice behind her. Kier arrested an annoyed, Don't bother me, and was dismayed to find the lad who had so kindly greeted them upon their arrival. Though she regretted missing her opportunity, she was glad she hadn't told him off. One point for Kier in her Don't Raise the Ire of the Useful People campaign. She glanced at Derry, who seemed to be watching her, no doubt making sure I'm not about to kill anybody, I hope he noticed that, and forced a smile. You're glad to find me here? What for? Are you enjoying the party? He bobbed his head. Clearly it was important to get the politeness out of the way before getting to the meat of anything. Um, yeah, it's great, she shrugged. I like the music. Which has started again and Derry's dancing. I'll catch him next time. Todd, remember? She was about to say pardon when he added Todd Schelling, and she understood what he meant. Kier Halliden. She shook his hand, and when he didn't let go right away, she masked her alarm. I guess I didn't look busy enough. Not wanting to miss her chance to speak to Derry, she got back to the point. Why is it you're glad to find me? Todd let go her hand and ran his through the back of his hair. I know you must be very busy, but you see, your swords, you didn't leave them at your inn? His earnestness puzzled her. Of course not, she answered automatically. They'd walk faster than you if I did that. Why do you ask? Well, I saw that you have two, and, well, my granda... He turned his face to look over to one side. Kier peered around to catch his eye again. Apparently he had become distracted by some activity over on the next porch. Your grandfather? Kier prodded with a fleeting look back at Derry, who, in spite of the dance steps, always seemed to be facing her whenever she looked at him. Boy, he's pretty intent on keeping an eye on me. My granda loves swords. He's built up a collection of them over the years. I think he might like to look at yours and see if... Well, also if you could tell him anything about his. She shook her head regretfully. I'm afraid I don't know all that much about swords. I did read some weapon history texts, but I don't know how useful that information would be in this situation. I mean, I doubt if I could match a weapon with its era or creator or anything like that. Do you think you could pay him a visit all the same? It couldn't hurt. I guess you're very busy. Todd shrugged apologetically and started to back away. Kier stopped him with a hand, relenting. No, wait! She glanced disappointedly at Derry. Maybe I can make it quick and get back here. I would be happy to come and meet your grandfather. Even if I can't tell him anything about them, I'd be really interested to see his collection. Todd's boyish face lit up. Oh, thanks! She turned again to Derry, who was giving her that expressionless look again, warning her to behave herself. She grinned and shrugged as if to say, Look at me being friendly. I haven't even touched my hilt yet. Grandal, be pleased, Todd went on. With his arm, he directed her which way to go, and she started to follow. Uncertainty and inspiration hit her simultaneously, and she stopped. Hold on a minute, all right? I've got to talk to someone before I go with you. Let him know where I'm going, because looking at your grandfather's swords or whatever could take a while. She could also just let Derry know she wanted to speak to him later about dancing. He'd be pleased. She scanned the crowd for Derry's blonde head. It took a moment to find him, because he wasn't anywhere near where he had been before, and the sight that met her eyes made her thudding heart sink. Derry was leaving the square on the far side, with a girl on his arm. A redhead. He was smiling down at her shining, upturned face. Kier's lips tightened. She crossed one leg in front of the other and leaned against the pillar. 
It's okay. He'd probably laugh at me anyway. Can you see him? Kierre had forgotten the youth was even there. She shook her head and sighed deeply. No, I don't think it's all that important after all. Scowling, she stomped down the steps again and headed at a springing lion's pace back toward Todd's cottage until she remembered she didn't know the way. She let the lad take the lead. She was strangely irked by what she had seen and did not lose the ferocity in her steps until they arrived on the cottage doorstep. Once inside, though, she forgot everything else. "'Oh, it's you,' Jeskelin said. "'Does that mean you're happy to see me?' Frederick asked Riley. "'You can't blame me for mistrusting you.' Frederick leaned against the shed. "'But let me ask you this. Why should you not, in truth?' The actions that led to my banishment were indiscretions. I used bad judgment, and I've paid for it. I am paying for it. Jeskelin, I did nothing that could ever be seen as disloyal. Lord Kean chose to see my mistakes as personal insults, and for that I am banished. But I did not— His throat constricted with emotion, and he spoke to the shed wall. I never have and never will commit any act in direct opposition to him. He sought the moon's assistance in controlling himself. I still... I still love and honor him, Jeskelin. You have to believe me. Jeskelin considered his words in spite of himself. The shaman had heard more than one confession and expression of regret. It was part of his duty helping those who had erred return to their right and true path. Frederick sounded no different from other transgressors he'd known who were truly repentant. It seemed to Jeskelin now that Frederick had just as much right to seek redemption, and that if Kean Barthelon were any kind of lord worthy of respect, he would honor the attempt of this man who had served him loyally for so long. He remained cautious. We were taken by surprise by your urgent need to speak to Kier a few days ago. Why not present yourself? Surely you must understand that there are those among you who will not be altogether pleased to see me. I needed to talk to Kier alone. I had reasons for it, so I thought to just bring her to me. And finish your meeting with a knock on her head and abandoning her? Frederick shrugged. Regrettable, but necessary. I couldn't have her rushing back to bring the rest of you. Why was it necessary to separate her from the rest of us just to warn her off our mission? Frederick shifted, making Jeskelin's spell quiver. Is that what she told you? Interesting. Isn't that what you said to her? A pause. Then Frederick answered, Now, Jeskelin, I had words for her and her alone. I would hardly repeat them here. However, the result of our exchange is partly why I need to speak with you. The tension emanated from the soldier like an aura of static electricity. Her response merely confirmed my suspicions. She's been found out. That she has not done as I advised tells me she thought I was bluffing. Jeskelin looked up at the taller man squarely. You have my attention. Thank you, he bowed. Still, why me? Derry is the captain of our party. Why not share this information with him or one of the others? Frederick shrugged again. It's quite simple. What I have to say involves some less than favorable news about Kier. I'm sure you'd agree that there are several in your party who have a biased sense of admiration for her. I think I'm not being unfair when I say that they wouldn't accept what I have to tell with an open mind. 
You, on the other hand, are a shaman. I believe you have that clarity your friends lack and will be able to hear what I have to say and choose the right course of action. Jeskelin thought carefully. Frederick's answer made sense, and it had been a long time since the mage's particular attributes had been truly appreciated by his companions. Fennel and Skimnoddle were plainly of a mind that Kier could do no wrong. Even Janik had a peculiar fondness for her, in spite of his pretense that it was otherwise. Though Derry had confided in Jeskelin his own concerns about Kier's level of commitment, the young captain undeniably had strong feelings of friendship for the other fighter. Only he had the experience at putting all prejudices aside to analyze a situation with, Frederick had put it well, clarity. "'Have I assessed the situation accurately?' Frederick smiled. "'Yes, you have. I can see that, in spite of the recent past, you are still a man of integrity. So, what news do you have for me?' In the moon's glow, Jeskelin could just make out Frederick's nod of approval. In a low voice, the red-headed man began to speak. I have reason to believe that Kier's motive for coming on this mission was not one of kindness and generosity. Her motive was assurance. Assurance? She wants to be certain that she finishes what she started. What are you saying? Jeskelin's mind raced. Frederick's voice was a whisper, barely audible over the sound of the rising moon. Kier Halliden was the one who gave the Lady Alon Mare the magical device that is killing her. Blood rushed through the mage's head like crashing waves. Still, he held his reaction in check. It would not do to agree or disagree hastily. He studied the other man. That is a heavy charge. It started before you met her. Frederick's voice was full of heavy sadness. Disguised as a maid, she got herself a post at Barthelon Castle. Then one day a package arrived from someone she was familiar with, and she delivered it to the lady, compliments of my lord. It contained a pendant in the shape of a blue jeweled snake. The lady is wearing it even as we speak. Jeskelin raised a skeptical eyebrow. The snake is a symbol of undying love. Frederick explained. That particular snake is a cursed artifact, a malison. Jeskelin's dinner undulated in his belly. The curse secretes into Alon's body both through her skin and her breath. As long as she wears the snake, she will ingest more of its dark magic. Kier stayed in her post long enough to ensure that the malison took effect, and then she traveled to where her correspondence had told her she could find Lord Valraker. She joined with him, and the rest you know. The mage frowned in the darkness, his heartbeat quickening. That all sounds plausible, but why would she do it? Isn't it obvious? I mean, while you were on your previous mission, Kier's first assignment for Valraker, remember, she was in contact more than once with a known Dregor loyalist. Ronav, Jeskelin said doubtfully, his men tried to kill her more than once. Maybe for not following orders? Jeskelin checked his protest. Kier did have a tendency to act in her own interest. Taking that sword, for instance and more than once she had resisted Derry's leadership. But when Ronav took her, she was beaten very badly, Jeskelin pointed out. They flogged her. She was cut and bruised and had a broken rib. Frederick waved a shadowy hand. 
They made their point, didn't they? And whoever sustained long-term damage from cuts and bruises? Kier in league with Ronav. Kier knew goblins were coming. The presence of magic on her has intensified. She becomes unreasonably cross when her actions are questioned. Frederick's suggestions trickled into the pool of suspicions Jeskelin had harbored over these past few weeks. A grim doubt slithered along the bottom of his thoughts. There's something else. Frederick turned and leaned back against the shed with an air of nonchalance. I don't know if you've ever seen her vanish or suddenly materialize as if out of nowhere. The pace of Jeskelin's heart had caught up with his mind. He knew exactly what Frederick was referring to and he did not like where this was going. Kier Halliden, Frederick said, has the ability to gate. Flames leapt in Jeskelin's gut. That was the fear he had struggled for days to quash. Impossible! It's not possible! She has no magical ability whatsoever! The words sounded weak even to himself. He had not been satisfied with her story of her and Fennel's escape from the earthquake. That was the second time she'd appeared virtually out of thin air at their fireside. And he'd never forgotten the sense of unease he felt the first time upon her return from her visit with Ronav. A gate was a powerful spell. Creating a doorway to another location required a level of skill that, in spite of years of commitment and training, remained well and truly out of Jeskelin's reach. Yet Jeskelin had guessed, and now he knew, that such a spell was in the hands of this cocky young upstart. Kier Halliden could gate. Jeskelin could not. He shivered with the chill of his blood, and his head whirled. But why would she hold back something like this from me, he thought. Unfortunately, the answer was obvious. His heart thudded double time. Frederick's soft voice rang like a dinner gong through Jeskelin's tumultuous thoughts. "'I can tell you don't like what you're hearing. I understand that,' he said gently. His throat tightened with his next words. "'And I can't tell you how debased I feel. I was intimate with the woman who may very well succeed at taking the life of a dear friend, the wife of my lord.' He leaned his head against the shed as if to ease the weight of his pain. I find myself admitting that Lord Kean was right to banish me after all. If I didn't truly deserve it for the reasons he gave, I sure deserve it for falling for the enemy. Jeskelin's heart warmed. He breathed deeply of the night air to calm and caution himself. It was still not proof that she had given Alon Mare a malison. Having acknowledged that, it was clear this man had been through much in these recent months. His new humility had led him to openly admit his guilt, which was the first step in achieving redemption and forgiveness. The least the shaman could do was accept the steps Frederick was taking. He was right to choose someone as capable as I of objectivity. Golgothar stood outside Misty and Juggler's room at the inn a few blocks from the square. He hesitated only because he did so hate to breach societal codes of conduct. He shook his head and tisked. There was nothing for it. For the good of a cause, sometimes one had to do things one was not proud of. Sacrifices, some people called them. He assumed the undignified position known as a crouch and peered through the keyhole, eyeing his destination. Given enough information, he waggled his fingers just so and stepped through. 
He saw immediately what he was looking for. He flipped open the flap of Misty's saddlebag and removed an object, flat, about the length of Misty's forearm and wrapped in black cloth. He secreted it away inside his cloak and left the room the same way he entered. She's far too vain for her own good. Skimnoddle returned the broad-brimmed hat to its owner and slipped in an extra noble over and above the agreed-on price. Success, he signed in Thieves' Argo. There'll be one less hungry child in town tonight, he said. My compliments to the chef, the other halfling replied. That's some nifty boots you got there. My regards to your father next time you see him, Skimnoddle said, tipping his now hatless head and taking his leave. The spoken form of Thieves' Argo came less automatically to him since he'd had no one to practice with of late. On his way back to Fennel and the others, he picked a couple of pockets to make up for what he'd lost in his game with the assassin. He patted the hidden spot in his waistcoat where he'd tucked a little bluish clay bottle that bore an uncanny resemblance to the one in Misty's pouch. The difference was the contents. Misty's contained a few cherry blossoms, and the one Skimnoddle now had was brimming with tiny white trefoil-shaped petals. Having accomplished what he'd set out to do by dropping the dice on the ground, the games that followed had been truly pleasurable. He almost felt guilty for having such a good time when the others thought he was working. Yay! Way to go, Skimnoddle! I always knew he would do well. Jeskellen, on the other hand... So as you know, I am still writing book three in this trilogy in four parts, and twice in the last week I've been asked how far along I am in the writing of that book. It is unbelievable how long it is taking me to write it. The first two books, I just kind of spewed out ideas and I played around with them and made stuff up. Book three is a challenge because I have to tie all those loose ends together and bring it all to a satisfying conclusion. And that has been interesting, but I finally feel like it's coming together. I think I'm two thirds to three quarters of the way through. There will be gaps here and there to fill, but the main story arc is nearly complete. I'm thrilled to say. I will be even more thrilled when I get to tell you I'm done. Now, did you know any Canadian citizen or permanent resident can become a member of the Canadian Science Fiction and Fantasy Association? For only a $10 annual fee, you can nominate and vote for your favorite science fiction, fantasy, and horror works in the Aurora Awards. I was yesterday years old when I knew that. Did you also know that on this day in history, January 20th, 1869, Elizabeth Cady Stanton became the first woman to testify before U.S. Congress? And in 1953, the first U.S. telecast was transmitted to Canada from Buffalo, New York. January 20th, 1964, Meet the Beatles was released in the U.S. January 20th. 2020, Ottawa was the coldest capital city in the world. In 1994, the movie Four Weddings and a Funeral premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, and in 2006, High School Musical was released, becoming Disney Channel's most successful TV movie. And finally, <laughs> in 1982, 
heavy metal musician Ozzy Osbourne bit the head off a bat on stage in Des Moines, Iowa. Thank you so much to my family, Matt, David and Heather, and Maggie. Thanks, David and Sharon. Shout out to the original six. And thank you so much to you, dear listeners. Like, subscribe, and share. Now, go be fantastic.